Throughout this entire series, what we have, in essence, been trying to answer is, how do you get full life? How do you get the life that you were created for? How do you attain the good life, as it were? And we've tried to suggest that we go after that in a multitude of different ways, and that what Jesus has done in the gospel is called us to find it through him in a proximate and intimate relationship with God himself. So as we finish this series, I am drawn to a story in the scriptures that asks that very question. And I will let you know that this is a sermon that I have preached a couple times before here at Hope Alliance, uh, albeit in a bit of a different way. And so if you've heard this before, I apologize, but my guess is we all need to hear it again, myself included. But for many who are new and newer or have connected over the last couple of years to us, uh, this will be a new teaching for you and hopefully uh, deeply meaningful. There's a person uh, in the stories of Jesus who asks that very question of Jesus. Uh, He says, teacher, how do I get life? And we have often talked about this as the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. So if you've copied the scriptures, you can turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. This is what Matthew writes. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Well, Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. Then come. And follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. The story of the rich young ruler, where he comes to Jesus and he asks, Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? He's asking the question, How do I get life? How do I get the good life? Throughout the series and throughout um, the time that we've been together as a church, we've been repeatedly uh, trying to redefine, uh, based on the teaching of Jesus, what the word or the phrase eternal life means. We've suggested that we've often compartmentalized eternal life into a simply future existence in heaven someday. And we say, that's true. It's just not a complete definition of eternal life. So eternal life is actually not just a full life someday, but a full life now and someday. And so what the rich young ruler is asking Jesus is not, in essence, how do I get to heaven? What he's asking Jesus is, how do I live the life that God has created me for? This full life that is promised to me now and in the afterlife. And it's in a couple of the sub-questions that the rich young ruler asks that we really get at the heart of what's going on here. Did you notice these? The first question that the rich young ruler asked is, what good thing do I have to do? 
What good thing do I have to do? And this, quest, this question really exposes the reality of this person's heart, doesn't it? And it really exposes the reality of our world, not just present, but from the garden to the present. That the pursuit of life, how you get to the full life, peace and meaning and significance and acceptance and all of these things is based upon you. It all rests on your shoulders. What good thing must I do? And in this, we get the sense that this man has been steeped in the culture of his day, and likewise, we are steeped in the culture of our day, which suggests that value and significance and acceptance and security all come from our production and our performance. In essence, we must prove ourselves, prove our worth. We live in this world just like he did in that day, albeit somewhat differently, where value only comes from producing and performing. And it is a wheel that keeps on turning. That even in our relationships, our vocation, even in our marriages, in our connection to our children, In all of these things, these truths emerge. Because the question that is often, if not always, being asked of us by those around us and the world is, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? That's what your company asks of you. As much as your husband and your wife love you unconditionally, and I believe they do, part of them is asking this question of you. And as great as your friends are, and I believe they are great and meaningful, part of their relationship with you is asking this question of you. What can you do for me? What value do you bring to this relationship? What value do you bring to this company? How does your presence affect our shareholders? In essence, prove yourself. Produce and perform. Now what's fascinating here is we understand about this man that he seems to be a wealthy man, right? He's rich. Jesus says, sell your possessions. We'll get to that in a second, what is going on there. But his questions really don't have to do with his wealth, right? And it seems like he's a significant person societally, and yet his questions really don't have to do with his social status. His questions are geared specifically towards a religious status, Here's what we need to pause and just reckon with deeply in our souls this morning. That is, that this idea of proving ourselves through performance and production has not been kept at a distance from our faith in God. In essence, the idea of religion is exposed as a deep-seated form of idolatry, that we are actually in our spiritual disciplines, in our church attendance, in our actions for God, 
doing it to prove ourselves to God. That is, that we don't just try to perform and produce Monday through Friday at work, or Monday through Friday evenings at home, but even on, in our relationship with God. And I think the truth of it is that we find, just like this rich young ruler, that though we might have thought this would lead to a full life, it actually leaves us at least somewhat empty. And so what is Jesus' response to this man? He says, good? What are you talking about good? In essence, being like, dude, what good thing could you bring? Mm, nothing. Right? He says, only God is good. So Jesus then wants to start digging a little bit deeper with this man. He says, so follow the commandments. Right? And he lists some of the commandments. So did you notice the order of these commandments? Right? To start with, uh, do not murder. Right? And we're all like, okay, we can keep that one. We feel pretty good about that, right? But then it starts getting a little bit deeper, doesn't it? Like, do not lie. And then it gets like, honor your father and mother. And we're like, uh-oh. And then the last one is, love your neighbor as yourself, and we're sunk, right? But not this guy. Did you notice him? He's like, I do all of those things, right? But then he turns and he asks the second question, which tells even more deeply the state of his heart. He says, what do I lack? And this question really shows us that he has internalized this reality of finding identity through his production and his performance, his need to prove himself. Put maybe a little bit differently, he's asking the question, so how do I measure up? And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that question rests deep within all of us. And it threatens to destroy all of us. Because it simply compounds the problem of trying to find life in the wrong places. And leads to some form of arrogance and pride or some form of despair and pride. That cripples us in a pervasive way. This man is asking a question that lies down deep inside all of us. What do I lack? Why haven't I found what it is I'm looking for? And then Jesus answers him pretty fascinatingly, doesn't he? With two responses to this man's two questions. His first response is crazy almost, isn't it? He says, well, first thing you need to do, clearly, is sell all your possessions. And this has to be, like, astounding in the moment. We know it's astounding because even the disciples, after this is all over and Jesus is trying to explain it to them, they're like, what on earth just happened, right? This is craziness. But here's what we need to know, right? Jesus isn't making a statement about possessions. He's also not making a statement about money. He's making a statement about identity. And he's cutting through all of the excess on the outside right to the heart of the matter 
and right to the heart of this particular man. Right to the boundary that is, that is erected, that is keeping this man from embracing Jesus for who he is. He's saying, listen, if you're going to embrace this gospel, you've got to depose the existing, the would-be kings and queens of your current existence. You've got to do something about the way in which you've been searching for the fullness of life. You've got to find another path. Which leads Jesus to his second statement. Follow me. (laughs) On one hand, he's asking for repentance. Sell all your possessions. Listen, pause and say this again in case I haven't said it clearly. That is not a universal statement, right? This is not true that if you want to follow Jesus, you have to sell all of your stuff, right? There's plenty of stories in church history of people who did that, and maybe it was good, maybe it was a religious act to prove themselves. We'll never know. But this is not a universal statement. Why do we know this? Because there's been other rich people in the New Testament that Jesus didn't say this to. He was saying this because he knew the situatedness of the heart of this man. He knew the boundary that was keeping this man from believing, that he had found his value and his identity in what he was able to produce and how he was able to perform. And Jesus was simply suggesting to him that his trophies of identity should not be found on the shelves of his earth and life, but rather in his identity in heaven. Store up treasures in heaven. That's not some trite Christian thing that means be poor and paupers this whole life and eventually you'll have great things in heaven. Listen, for some that may be the case. What Jesus is simply saying is find who you are in your dynamic connection to your creator, not the things that you can create on this earth. It's why you're lacking. And Jesus says, so follow me. In other words, take a different approach. Choose a new path towards life. I'm leading it. All you have to do is step out and follow me. It seems so easy, and yet it's incredibly difficult. How do we know this? Well, first and foremost, because we've tried to live it in our own lives, right? But secondly, because the story ends somewhat surprisingly. You expect stories like this to have happy endings, and yet we seemingly don't find one here. Because it says this rich young ruler leaves sad because he realizes how many possessions he has. We don't understand, and for whatever reason, we are meant to not fully understand what is all going on here, what is causing the fullness of his sadness. At some level, he has understood what he needs to do to pursue life, but at some level, he's not willing to do it. There's sadness there. There's also, I think, sadness in his awareness that he's not experiencing the life that he desires and that God promises to his People. And yet he is so consumed in his pursuit that he's either unwilling or doesn't see a means by which he can change course. And on the heels of that, Jesus makes a 
bold statement to his disciples. We didn't read it, but you could go on and keep reading. It says that Jesus says, it is super hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Is he talking about money? Nope. He's talking about people who have found their worth and identity in what they can do and how they can perform. They've proved themselves in some way. And why is it so hard for them to enter the kingdom of God? Isn't the gospel available to everyone? The answer is yes. Why is it so hard? Because they fail to see the depth of their need for the rescue that God is offering in Jesus. Because we, not they, we are finding our rescue in our own efforts. What ways have you sought to prove yourself in this life? Can I be vulnerable with you and give you some examples from my life? I've sought to prove myself as a minister of the gospel. This is sick and twisted and yet true, right? Because on Sundays it matters to me if it felt like I delivered a good sermon, if people got it or liked it, or how many people showed up, or how many people were connected to the virtual gathering. All of these are ways, even in my service to God, that I'm actually trying to prove myself rather than embracing an identity in Christ. Uh, you may not be surprised by this, but I've never tried to prove my wealth, uh, prove my worth in my appearance, right? right? I've never been uh, someone who's tried to look great or have the best clothes or anything like that, and you say, we're so glad you weren't trying because you're not making it. <laughs> That's not been a temptation for me in any way, but you know what is a temptation for someone like me in a way that I've often tried to prove my worth is through my intelligence, or through my sense of humor in trying to position myself as better than other people or as not lacking. I don't share those things to be morbid with you. I just share them to let you know we're all in this journey together. So what is it for you? How are you trying to prove yourself? Is it your bank account or your vocation? Is it your position, your corner office? Is it your social status is it being super mom or super dad and giving your kids the perfect life that you never had and having them in all kinds of activities? Is it your intelligence or your humor, your wit, your good looks? Is it your religious effort in an attempt to prove your worth to God? To each one of these things, if Jesus were with us this morning physically, he would give us a different command than he gave to the rich young ruler, but with the same application. Because chances are for you, it's not that you need to sell all your possessions. It's that you need to sell all your stock in how smart you think you are. Or sell all your stock in being a super pastor. Or sell all your stock in being uh, the best dad or mom that the world could create. Because all of those things are actually erected boundaries to receiving the life that God has offered us through Jesus. All of those things, hear them for what they are, are actually false gospels. 
It doesn't mean you're not allowed to be smart or dress nice or have nice things or be rich or have big bank accounts. It doesn't mean you can't be smart. It means where are you looking honestly for peace and life, for identity, for value and significance? And to each of us, just like to the rich young ruler, Jesus turns and says, if you want to believe, if you want to receive the gospel, you've got to do two things, right? From our very first sermon in this series. You repent and you believe. The very two things that Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Sell all your possessions, repent. Follow me, believe. Right? So what is he saying contextually to you this morning? What does the phrase, sell all your possessions, mean for you? Even the best of pastors can't give that kind of specific application. The Holy Spirit needs to speak. But then what does it mean to believe? How do you actually grab onto this life through belief in Jesus? How do you actually follow Him? And here's what I want to suggest to you. That it's actually tied into a story that came right before this. Did you, did you hear how this story actually began? It says, just then, a, a young man came up to Jesus. The, the phrase just then is significant because it ties it into the story that had just happened before. They're, they're dynamically linked. And so if you go a couple of verses before verse 16, I think in verse 13, Jesus, the, the, the Gospel of Matthew tells the story of Jesus' interaction with, of all things, little kids, right? In other words, in some way, what I'm suggesting to you is we'd probably all be better served in kids' ministry this morning, right? Me included. And this is how the story goes. Is then the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. Catch this next phrase. But the disciples rebuked them, right? Sounds like people like us, right? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're in kids' ministry, right? We've got bigger adult stuff to take care of here. And after all, we're managing Jesus' time, right? We're taking care of him, and this is how Jesus responds. Jesus says, let the kids come to me. Do not hinder them. Listen to this, bold language. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Oh, boy. Kingdom of heaven is a distinctly Matthean word. That is that Matthew loves that phrase. He doesn't say kingdom of God. He says kingdom of heaven. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. It's a little more Jewish in its structure. But in essence, it's the same kingdom language that is the gospel. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's the gospel language. And now not only is it at hand, but Jesus is saying, you know who it belongs to? The little kids. Incredible. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went out from there. Just then, a young man came to Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Incredible, isn't it? What's going on in this story of these little children? You have in them Jesus who is jealous for them to be with him, right? And this is a picture not just for little kids. This is a picture for all who would receive the kingdom of heaven. That Jesus' heart is that we would not be hindered in any way from experiencing that proximity to God that is the person and work of Jesus. 
And so as our world and our flesh battle to tell us that we have to prove ourselves, produce, perform, that's how you get life, Jesus is jealous that we not be hindered in that way. And then he comes and he says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, you don't have to be a great exegete to understand what's going on here. You don't, have to under, you don't have to be a great exegete to understand why the disciples were not really interested in letting Jesus do this, right? Because in the course of the world, if you're building a ministry, if you're building a program, if you're building a company, whatever it is, you want people on board who can help you get the job done, right? So the disciples are looking at the kids like they're cute and all, but they, they, like, they soil their diapers and they throw tantrums and like they're not going to help us get rid of the Romans, right? And Jesus is like, you don't even get it, do you? The only way you can come into the kingdom is like them. What does it mean to be like them? To have absolutely nothing to offer. To be fully dependent upon a king who would receive you. Not based upon what you can do for him. And Jesus says, whoa, disciples, get to the sides. I need them. And then he does something fascinating. He puts his hands on them. And symbolically, what's happening here is he takes possession of them. They're his. He welcomes them into the fold and the family. What does it mean to believe? It means that we understand that God is gracious. So I do not have to prove myself. And how do we lean wholly into that gospel truth? We willingly embrace our identity as little kids, fully dependent upon a God who we call Father, who receives us not because of what we can do, but because of His grace. Unless and until we embrace our identity as kids, we can't experience this kind of life that the gospel offers us through Jesus. An identity that is in no way, shape, or form based upon how you can perform in your vocation or in your religion. But wholly on a God who is jealous that you not be hindered in any way to come to Him. Sometimes when we talk about an identity as a kid, it's hard for us to process. What does it mean to be like a little kid? Jesus told a different story about kids. Kids who were a little older than babies and yet acting an awful lot like two babies. Remember the story of the lost son, sometimes called the prodigal son? Remember the story? We love this story so much and uh, Tim Keller's treatment of it that that's what we give to our, our, our visitors when they come as a gift to them because it's a beautiful explanation of the gospel. Remember the story? Here's how it goes. 
There's, this, there's a man who has two sons, and the younger son comes to the father and says, you know what, I want my inheritance now. And I'm kind of done with this whole family thing. I'm going to go on my own. Uh, and that's bold language. In that culture, in that day, you would have been told, fat chance. But somehow, this gracious father gives this man his inheritance, knowing full well what's going to happen. He runs away, and he blows it all living life on his own terms, doing whatever it is he wants to do, trying to find life and meaning in all the wrong places. And he finds himself desperate and destitute, so much so that he's working, in, uh, working with pigs and styes and mud and desiring to eat the food that they're serving to them. Of course, in a Jewish culture, this was the lowest of the low. And finally, he says, listen, my dad's servants are treated way better than this. Maybe if I just go back, my dad would forgive me in some way and let me be his servant and I could have more. And so he gets up the courage to go back. Do you remember the story? This is his father sees him coming from a distance. And he runs to greet him. And he doesn't greet him as a servant. Instead, he puts the royal robe on him and he slips the family signet ring on his finger. And he orders that the fattened calf, the best of the livestock, be slaughtered because there's going to be a feast for this son who was lost and now returns. But simultaneous to all of this, there's an older brother who's hanging around and watching all of this transpire. And the older brother never asked for his inheritance. He was working hard to prove himself to his father, to be the older son that culture demanded that he be. And yet, when this son who had blown everything comes back and gets this warm embrace from the father, it's more than he can handle. He's ticked. My guess is we would be too, right? I never got that robe. I never got that ring. I never got a big feast. And here I am slaving for you, doing all the things I'm supposed to do, and you never receive me in that way. And the father says to the son, everything I have is yours. In essence, suggesting that he's been so busy trying to prove himself and his worth to his father that he's never enjoyed what it means to live as part of this family. So maybe it's hard for you to think of yourself or hard for me to think of ourselves as little kids. Let's put it a different way this morning. We can be adult kids. My guess is your storyline tends to be one of these two sons. Either you've gone out in the world and tried to find value and life and meaning in all kinds of places, and maybe you've had some fun or maybe you've had some excitement, but you found them all empty and not truly giving you what they promise. Or maybe you've tried to do all the right things. Maybe you've tried to lean hard into your religious pursuit of God, but when you actually think about it now, you realize what you've been doing is no different. You've been trying to prove yourself through religion rather than through the world. 
And in both cases, the one thing that is clearly lacking is the full experience of life. And yet, when we turn to the Father, we find a God who is not simply willing to let us come back as a servant, but who is actually out looking for us. Did you catch the part of the story where the Father sees him from far off, right? Which connotes that he's looking for him every single day. He hasn't forgotten him. He hasn't written him off. That when we come back, feasts are thrown. That is that when we choose the family and life in it, is when we taste the feasts and wear the robe and put on the ring. Because the true prodigal in the story of the prodigal son is actually God himself. The word prodigal means to be extravagant or lavish. And so it's given of the son because he goes and lives an extravagant or lavish life. In other words, he blows all his money. That's not really prodigal. Who's actually extravagant and lavish is the dad. Who overlooks all of those things and welcomes him back with a feast and turns to the older son and says, the same thing is here for you the whole time. How have you, how have we been trying to find our worth, find full life by proving ourselves and pursuing all kinds of things? How, for those of you who have been in the church for numbers of years, how have you fallen into the trap of religion by trying to find life by proving yourself to God like an older brother? And if we're all honest, we would say we actually haven't tasted the fullness of life in either of those ways. Jesus says the only way you taste it is when you actually enter the embrace of the Father who's waiting for you and looking for you. When you actually let Him put the family robe over you and slide the family signet ring on you and throw a feast for you. In essence, when you finally stop trying to prove yourself and instead find an identity in the graciousness of our God who through the person and work of Jesus has already proven himself to you. Can I pray with you?